Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller, and it's a thrill to have you with us again for another episode I'm excited to bring you today's guest, Dr. Shane Langley, in an interview that I had a great time doing and I know you're going to really love. It's winter here in New England, which means we're out skiing. There's lots of snow here on the ground. The kids are getting lots of snow days. I don't know if this is a thing other places in the country, but you know, you'd think that in New England, we would be able to handle all of the snow and the you know, kids would be hardy and the schools would you know, be open no matter what the weather is. But it seems like we cancel a lot of school up here, and even in New England, where we're supposed to be able to handle this, uh, the kids are getting lots of delays, lots of days off of school, and I'm sure we'll get to make that up into June when it finally gets warm. Anyways, before we get into the interview, I wanted to share with you guys an article that I read in Bloomberg uh, Business Week, and I read this a little while ago, but it's been on my mind. And it's an article called The Five Universal Laws of Success. And this is a book review. Uh, It's a a review of a book that I haven't read, but I like the article. Uh, The author of the book is Albert Laszlo Barabasi, B-A-R-A-B-A-S-I. And he wrote a book called The Formula, The Universal Laws of Success, which is kind of a bold title here. He shares in this uh, article five keys to success or things that maybe we don't always think about when we think about success. And I think some of these apply to us as orthodontists, so I thought I'd share them with you. The first here is that performance drives success, but when performance is immeasurable, networks determine success. And so he gives the example, for instance, of tennis or chess or something as having it really be about performance. It doesn't really matter who you know. It matters your performance out there on the court or uh, playing in a chess match. But in other areas where maybe it's harder to define the success or it's not easy to agree upon, he gives the example of art. You know, if you're an artist, you kind of have to know people who can get your art in front of the right people, uh, who can, uh, you know, critique and promote your art. And I think this is something that definitely applies to us. Uh, Our performance often as orthodontists is a little bit immeasurable. So our networks, our social connections, uh, the people that we can interact with and form relationships with become very critical to our success. So this is the first point. Performance drives success, but when performance is immeasurable, networks determine success. The second point here, he says, is performance is bounded, but success is unbounded. And it goes on to say here, at the top of any field, there's little to no meaningful divergence in quality. All the top performers are pressing up against the limit of what's possible. Nevertheless, the rewards that go with being judged number one instead of number two are enormous and disproportionate. And we see that a little bit in some of you know, our orthodontic spaces. The difference in, in promoting ourselves, I think, as, as the premier place to go for, for orthodontic treatment, either as our individual practice or ourselves as specialists as, as a group, Uh, I think uh, really makes a big difference. And certainly, you know, I think among specialists, our our performance is probably quite similar. I think uh, the clinical work that's being provided in, you know, many or most of the orthodontic offices in the country is very good. However, the, you know, success of these practices is different. And so I find that that's an interesting point that 
perhaps our successes may be a little bit less correlated directly with our performance than we might think. Number three, fitness times previous success equals future success. And fitness here really is uh, being defined as, as quality. So in other words, the quality combined with previous successes is a good recipe for future success. And uh, that's certainly the case, right? Nothing draws a crowd like a crowd when we've got um, a practice that's successful with a busy waiting room with lots of raving fans that seems to drive more patients. And of course, that begs the question, you know, how do we as younger or new practitioners get things going? Well, we kind of got to we kind of got to fake it till we make it a little bit. But doing our best to garner, you know, online reviews to collect great cases and assemble them perhaps in a waiting room book or as part of our presentation to patients, kind of demonstrating our, our competency and our, and our success in the past. And we combine that with our abilities and that certainly leads to future success. I think that definitely we can relate to that in our orthodontic offices. Number four, it says, while team success requires diversity and balance, a single individual will receive credit for the group's achievements. And this maybe is a little bit of a sad commentary on the way we, we judge success in our society, but it's also kind of true. You know, when, you know we're here uh, a week away from uh, the Super Bowl and everyone in New England is excited to see Tom Brady play again in another Super Bowl. And, uh, you know, he certainly gets the outsized portion of credit for the wins and maybe even blame for the losses. But, you know, that's part of the reality of leaders is that when you stand at the top of your practice, you enjoy a lot of the benefits of that success, uh, even though it really probably makes sense to think about it as a team effort. And we certainly do value the contributions uh, of our wonderful team members who do so much for us and balance out all of our weaknesses and uh, shortcomings. Number five, and I think it ends here on, a, on an optimistic note, success can come at any time as long as we are persistent. You know, the point here being that, you know, success can happen the beginning of our career, the middle of our career, you know, people, authors, artists, um, musicians sometimes labor on in obscurity for decades before they're uh, successful. You know, I think that as orthodontists, we, we hope that that's not the case, that our talents and our contributions are recognized perhaps earlier on in our career. But I think the point remains that, you know, if there's something in your practice or uh, there's a level of success that you haven't reached yet, uh, it's never too late to reinvent yourself, right? It's never too late to make changes, to try something new, to position yourself in the marketplace in a different way, to do a different clinical technique. Um, I think that that can, can catapult us kind of to a new level of success and uh, perhaps become, you know, an overnight success after uh, decades of, of, of work at it. So anyway, if you want to go look at this article again, it's called uh, The Universal Laws of Success. I, I read the article here on Bloomberg Business Week. But if you want to go read the book, Albert Laszlo Barabasi is the author. Let's get on to our interview with Dr. Shane Langley after a word from this week's sponsor. This episode of the Elevate Orthonics podcast is sponsored by Trapezio. Trapezio, which was previously known as the Academy of Orthodontic Assisting, was founded by Dr. Doug DePew in 1998. Trapezio is the premier training platform for the orthodontic team. They offer online education in courses such as Orthodontic Assisting Levels 1 and 2 and OSHA safety courses developed for the clinical team. They also offer courses for the front office team, such as Ortho Common Knowledge, Insurance Coordinator, Financial Coordinator, and Treatment Coordinating. 
We all know that training team members is timely, expensive, and often tedious. Trapezio was developed to help alleviate this issue with providing formal orthodontic education and training, ensuring that your patients receive the highest care possible. Why not just understanding simply how to do procedures, but knowing why, enables your orthodontic team to feel confident and invested in their role within the practice. Since 2006, Trapezio has been the endorsed staff education training program for the American Association of Orthodontists. If you'd like more information about Trapezio, please visit their website at trapezio.com. That's T-R-A-P-E-Z-I-O.com. If you mention the Elevate Orthodontics podcast, you will receive 20% off any per-person pricing. Dr. Shane Langley graduated from the University of Alabama in 2005. He earned his orthodontic certificate and master's degree also from the University of Alabama in 2009. Dr. Langley's speaking interests include the use of TADS to aid in the successful treatment of complex malocclusions, the biomechanical techniques and principles that accompany treatment with TADS, noncompliance correction of various malocclusions, and aesthetic orthodontics. Dr. Langley has practiced orthodontics full-time in Daphne, Alabama since 2009 and has served in various positions on the faculty of the orthodontic department at the University of Alabama. He is a member of the American Association of Orthodontists and the American Dental Association, as well as the local dental and orthodontic associations. Dr. Langley, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So we heard a lot of uh, Alabama references here. Are are you looking forward to the, the game tomorrow night? I am. I'm, I'm excited. I actually have a uh, a flight to uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, right in the middle of the game. So I'll be streaming it on my phone as best I can while in an airplane. So we'll see how that goes. Okay. Okay. I mean, I feel like, you know, obviously if you're an Alabama fan, you know, watching this game for the third time, I guess is still exciting. For the rest of us, we're, we're uh, maybe <laughs> not quite as enthusiastic as you guys are. <laughs> Yeah, you know, in Alabama, you're ra- you're born and raised either an Alabama fan or an Auburn fan, and uh, and I was kind of reared to be an Alabama fan, and it's, it's deeply ingrained. Uh, and football runs deep in the South, so uh, we're excited. Uh, we understand, and I, I can definitely empathize with the, the rest of the country at the Clemson Alabama <laughs> uh, three feet. So uh, I get that. Yep, yep. All right. Well, I'm I'm really excited to have you on the podcast tonight, and uh, we're going to talk about a number of different topics. Uh, that I think are going to be of interest to our audience. But I want to start with this topic we heard in the introduction of TADS, temporary anchorage devices. And I think this is something that is kind of an interesting thing in our profession. You know, I, I always make the joke that 10 years ago, when I was in residency, and it sounds like when you were finishing residency too, I mean, the enthusiasm level for it was really super high. And then it seems to have trailed off dramatically. And it seems that there are people like yourself that are utilizing this effectively. And then there's a lot of people that have just kind of lost interest. So tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this or or maybe how you stayed interested in this when maybe some of the rest of us have kind of uh, waned in our interest. Yeah, you're right. Ten years ago when we were in residency, it was at peak level. And I was fortunate enough in the residency program that I was in at UAB to be given a little bit of freedom to kind of run with my use of TADS and, and the, to have a, a little bit of creativity, if you will, uh, to think outside of the box. And that fostered uh, a desire to continuously think outside of the box. And I think in my practice currently, TADS are a game changer for me. They allow me to do a lot of things that I couldn't do prior to that without surgery. For instance, uh, open bite closure, uh, expansion um, in a non-growing or, or older patient where the 
uh, mid palatal suture is fused. We're using a lot of TAD assisted palatal expansion, a lot of space closure in missing teeth, missing second bicuspids especially. So I think there's a lot of value added orthodontics that come along with the use of TADs. Uh, but to speak to the point that it's kind of dropped off in a lot of ways, I think comes to the fact that while it's a game changer, it's, it's not a simple thing to just toss into your practice without without a lot of support. Technically, it's difficult, not the placement per se, but I would say that people are somewhat uh, afraid to step into that uh, in, in your practice to start placing. So a lot of times people will delegate that to an oral surgeon or a periodontist. And with that comes a lot of increased cost to the patient. So the patient will reject treatment. Yeah. Um, I've never delegated treatment or, or placement to anybody. So we, and we keep that cost at a minimum and we don't charge extra for its use. So we've never had a patient, knock on wood to this date, never had a patient reject treatment with implants. Okay. And so you're, you're building that into your fee and, and not making it a financial issue. You kind of feel like the benefits clinically to you are worth it, that you don't feel you have to upcharge the patient. Correct. We have a complex case fee, whether it be surgical, whether it be a TAD or something like that. And it stays within that fee. So, uh, and we don't charge extra. I think it's a big part of our practice not to make a patient feel nickel and dimed. So we never like tackle on more costs. If there's like if a TAD fails, I don't charge them for another placement of a TAD. I just simply take it out and place another one when I need it. But absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more. You know, I'm, I'm curious specifically about TAD assisted expansion. You, you mentioned perhaps some of the advantages and, and I've seen some of the discussion about that. Um, tell us a little bit the theory behind that or the situations you're using it, what you're able to do that maybe we're not achieving with kind of our traditional tooth supported or tooth and tissue supported expanders. Sure. So, you know, once the suture fuses, uh, trying to apply enough adequate force to just the teeth or teeth and tissue alone isn't sufficient to, to split that suture. So uh, in our practice, we utilize two TADs placed on the palate between uh, the first and second bicuspid. Uh, I make my expander in-house. I use a 3M MTEC TAD for that because it has a solderable cap that I can place over my um, implant in my impression, kind of like an analog and I can solder to it. So I have a tooth and implant born RPE. Uh, and then we use that to open that suture. And we've been successful up into the early mid thirties uh, with gaining mid palatal separation with these appliances. So it's, it's really been a nice game changer for us, especially in that transverse dimension without having to use a Sarpy or, or something of that nature or settling for just a, a lesser result from not being able to get that expansion. Sure. Are you doing this on, you know, kids in the mixed dentition as well, or you're kind of targeting these ones where you're a little bit suspect about the suture? No, I'm using traditional expansion on, on mixed dentition. Anybody under 12 or 13 uh, will use a traditional expander, just a Hyrex. Uh, but anybody over that, especially females over 13 or 14, I will use a, a TAD-assisted expander on. Males over 14 or 15, I'll use a TAD-assisted expander. Uh, just to try to make sure that we get sutural separation and not pushing out the molars too far and getting dehiscences and fenestrations on the buccal bone. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back to this again. It seems to me that there are, I, I run into this handful of people like yourself and that, that are using TADS 
on a regular basis. To be honest, it seems like many of them, like yourself, are, are people that are speaking on it that have an active interest in it. Is this something that you kind of either you're all in or you're all out? I mean, do you run into people that are kind of using these selectively or is this something that, that you're either placing a couple hundred a year or you're placing zero? Where, where, where do you see the divide there? Yeah, that's a great point. I don't see a lot of people who are just placing a few. It's it's all or none in a lot of ways. And when I say all, I don't mean, I don't advocate the overuse of implants. When there's simple mechanics that can be used to treat a case, I, by all means, I want to use the standard traditional orthodontic treatment. But there are so many times where we can provide, like I said, value-added treatment by using an implant. But I do think that you're right. I think it's an all or none type principle. And that's partly due to fear of the unknown. I think a lot of people are just afraid of the what if or what if this goes wrong. Or And the big thing I've noticed with the use of implants is if you're going to be successful with it, you've got to have stick to You've got to stay with it and you can't turn and, and stop using it at the first failure of an implant or first thing that goes wrong. You've got to kind of stick with it and just be real persistent, for lack of a better word, yeah. with its use. And then once you stick with something and you're persistent enough, you're going to go through all the all the understanding of what if this happens, what if that happens, and you're going to realize really quickly that those things are minimal. But when you can see the outcomes, uh, it's substantial in a really big way. And it's really gratifying. You know, um, I usually I joke with my my partner. He is a big hunter. He likes to go hunting and I'm not a big hunter. Uh, I like to fish, but not hunt. So, you know, a lot of times hunters, you, you remember the the famed dentist that killed the lion and oh yeah, Cecil did it illegally and you know, all these things. But they'll kill them for trophies, right? And for me, my I don't go hunting, but my trophy is taking a an eight eight millimeter open bite and closing it, intruding the posterior teeth with tads versus you know as opposed to surgery or something like that. Taking a case that would be very very difficult and and basically like slaying the lion, if you will. And then have my final picture to look at and go like, there's my trophy. That's my, that's my trophy. <laughs> so there's, there's that, that motivation for one that pushes me to, to do that. But then there's also the motivation of trying to provide the best thing I can for the patient. Um, and that's, that's a difficult thing to do, to uh, define. Like what is the best thing for your patient? That's a personal question. You know, it's something that the orthodontist has to answer along with the family uh, to determine what's best. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You mentioned maybe the fear of doing it. And I think, like when I think about myself and some of other people that I've talked with, I don't know that I have a fear of like a bad clinical outcome or a clinical complication. I guess what I hear a lot from people is a fear of just the hassle of it. Like I'm, I'm afraid that it's going to like destroy my clinical efficiency when something comes in. And not that I can't handle that one situation, but in the time that I spend doing that, all the rest of my office is going to come to a screeching halt. So, I mean, I'm sure that in placing lots of these, you've gained some kind of ways to work this in and make it more efficient and not have it slow down your workflow. I don't know if there's anything you can kind of share with our listeners on how to kind of do these advanced complex treatments, but integrate them into a busy clinic setting. Absolutely. That's a great question too. And we've evolved so much with how we've integrated that to make that work. Uh, We started placing implants like throughout the day. I'd have certain implant appointments and we use quite a bit of uh, lasers as well. We do laser appointments and and we've what we've learned is that it doesn't integrate well with a busy flow. It breaks your flow up. So placement especially is one thing that will will really kind of bog down your day. So I take two half days a month uh, and and completely devote those to TAD placement and laser therapy, like laser treatments. So um, in the morning during school, when you're not that you're not super busy anyway, I will 
just kind of sandwich in a bunch of these implant appointments for placement, not for follow-up. The follow-up question, like how does that tie into a busy practice, depends a lot on your mechanics. And that's something that you can flesh out over time too, figuring out how to make this as user-friendly for your staff so that when they come back in for a return visit, uh, an adjustment, how can we make it to where it's simple to tie them in and not this 30-minute long complex procedure of untying and retying? Uh, and there's lots of ways to uh, to utilize easy mechanics and indirect mechanics that just make it simple so it's a simple retie. And I'd love to talk more on that at another date, but that's a, that's a long lecture, um, essentially. <laughs> Yeah. I like how you do that. I like how you move that to its own time. What I have found is that the killer of clinical efficiency isn't long appointments or appointments that are particularly difficult. It's appointments that have an unclear duration. In other words, sometimes I can get them done very quickly. Other times I can spend an hour, you know, and when there's that appointment that I don't know how long it's going to take, I either have to, like you've done, kind of quarantine it or we have to rework the whole procedure. Because to me, like I say, I would much rather say, I'm, I want this procedure to last 40 minutes consistently than to last an average of 30 minutes, but have this huge variation. That's what really kills, I think, the efficiency in a busy office. Absolutely. And the more you do it, the more you'll realize which, which ones have that potential to go beyond your expectations. You'll know which ones are the ones that you struggle with more. Um, I agree completely. What we do in our office, too, though, along those lines are uh, we like to do like things at like times uh, that for lack of a better way of saying it. So we'll have mornings where we have uh, removal mornings where we just take 20 people's braces off in the morning. That's all we do. We don't see simple visits or bondings or new patients. We just have removals. So there's 20 patients that come in to get their braces off. So there's a lot of efficiency in that when you're doing all the same thing. It makes it very efficient. We've taken that and then put it into practice with our use of TADS and lasers as well. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, aesthetics and orthodontics. I know this is another area of, of interest and focus for your practice. Tell us a little bit about your philosophy behind that and uh, kind of the ways that you think uh, having an aesthetically oriented practice has helped you. Well, when you look at the pressures uh, on our profession, especially uh, the recent pressures, uh, with the advent of Smile to Red Club and even prior to that, just the big heavy influence Invisalign's had on not just our practices or general dentist practices, but on patients and what patients expect. Uh, it's, it's kind of pushed the envelope on what patients' expectations are, and the driver really is aesthetics. They want to look good during treatment, not just after treatment. For so many years, we've always just thought, well, I'm taking this person that has, you know, a malocclusion or a lot of uh, crowding and rotations and, and not an unesthetic smile, and I'm going to give them this beautiful aesthetic smile. But patients want to look good while they're doing it. So um, for us, something that's really helped set our practice apart where we are is to offer a fully fully aesthetic practice. You know, we we offer clear brackets. We use uh, 3M Clarity Advanced brackets. Uh, we don't charge extra at all for ceramic. Uh, we'll still use metal if the patient really wants it, because ultimately it's all about the patient's choices and their decisions. Uh, and, and nobody can define what is aesthetic other than the patient. So as the doctor, it's not my role to tell them what's aesthetic. I just treat them how they want to be treated. But but we don't have an upcharge for that. And uh, we use a lot of aligners. So if a patient wants aligner therapy and it suits their case, we're, we're happy to treat with plastic. So, again, 3M's come out with their aligner, uh, Clarity aligner. And it's been a good uh, source of, of correction for those type patients in our office. But I think aesthetics is a, a massive driver and we need to kind of see what's pushing 
the those drivers and and try to accommodate that and change with it rather than than sit back and just watch it happen. You know, it's not adjust and yeah. adapt to what's happening around us. I'm going to ask you maybe a little bit of a difficult question. You know, how do you gauge whether something like that is having a real benefit for your practice? In other words, it sounds good and you get positive feedback. I used to give out electric toothbrushes with every case. Um, we spent a ton of money every year on all these fancy electric toothbrushes. And then one year I stopped it. And I don't think we like really noticed the difference in terms of our new patient starts or anything else like that. And you could argue maybe my oral hygiene situation was different. I don't think it was, but you know, there are other ancillary benefits, but if you're looking at it really from a marketing or a new patient standpoint, how, how do you measure that? Or is, is it for you really just that this is the kind of practice you want to have? Well, that's a great question for, for one it's, it's branding. You've got to decide what you want your practice to be. And it's, it's kind of your brand. I joke about it. I say, if, I, if I'm in the grocery store and I see a patient and you know, a lot of times we treat enough patients where you don't always recognize them and you wish you could see them and know, hey, that's my patient. But if they're in clear braces, I know they're more than likely my patient. So that, that's an easy way of kind of <laughs> recognizing them. And jokingly, it's, it's branding. But honestly, when we first implemented this five years ago, we were growing at about three to five percent a year for the past five years. We changed nothing in the practice, didn't add a location or anything else. And the year we went all clear, we jumped 20 percent. And I was like, whoa, what just happened? We grew 20% in a year. And then we were like, maybe that's just a blip. But consistently for the past five years, we've grown between 15 and 20% every year, uh, year on end. And uh, we've grown dramatically. And what we've kind of pinned it down to is we would ask patients, like, what, what do you want out of treatment? You know, and, and a lot of times it's aesthetics. But really what noted it for us is when they would call, patients would call in for the new patient uh, exam to be set up, they would say, oh, I was talking with Susie Hughes' mom at the soccer field, and she said that y'all do clear braces and, and you don't upcharge. And my front desk got to answer that question quite a few times with absolutely not. And we'd love to treat you with whatever we want to treat you with. The brace is just a, uh, an instrument to get you to a final result, and we don't want to charge you extra for something that you want. Um, and it really helped a lot. I feel like that was a, a big marketing push in our practice. And we heard that more from the front desk than anything else. So you're right. You can't put your finger on everything that helps make your practice grow. But when we made that change, we, we saw a significant benefit. Yeah, that's great. If, if the you know word's getting out there and, and people are kind of recognizing that as part of your practice's brand, I, I, think, that's, I think that's a neat thing. I'm glad you mentioned locations. Did you have a couple different uh, locations? I practice out of three different locations as well. But you know, tell our audience a little bit about the pros and cons of, of working out of different offices and in different communities and, and how you manage that. Uh, definitely see a difference in, in communities. Uh, we have a practice in Daphne, which is the main office that I purchased in 2009. Uh, we added an, a location in Fairhope, which is my hometown. It's about 20 minutes away, so it's not really far away. And we knew that when we added that practice, we would somewhat cannibalize some patients that we were already getting. But I really wanted to get a foothold in the area and be in my hometown. Uh, and that was great. So basically, very similar culture, very similar way of life between those two practices. But then we acquired the practice of an orthodontist who had an untimely passing. And we acquired the practice. And it's definitely different, drastically different. And Mobile is more of an urban area. Uh, and where I live in Daphne and Fairhope is much more suburban or rural. The, the differences are stark. It's just been a hard thing to get used to. And it's taken a year or two for us to kind of figure out the little nuances between the two practices. Uh, one obvious issue, if you're going to have multiple locations, is uh, 
your software. We have we have cloud-based software, which makes it super easy to always be able to log in and see patient information, regardless of which office they come to. Uh, that was one of the headaches when we first started. We did not have that. We were trying to <laughs> remote into our servers, uh, and that was a nightmare. I remember that. That was a nightmare. And then we went with another company and they had a quote cloud solution, but it wasn't really a cloud. So that what that ended up being a nightmare. And we finally got it kind of settled in where we're happy. So who, who are you using now for uh, practice management software? Uh, we're Cloud9. We use Cloud9 and we've been thrilled with Cloud9. Been a good option for our practice. I'm on Ortho2 Edge now and I seem to hear the most consistently positive things about Cloud9 and Ortho2 Edge in terms of cloud-based uh, orthodontic software. So yeah, I've, I've got a lot of friends that are happy Cloud9 users, and I think that is a, a key part of it. You've got a, an associate now a, turned into a partner, and my, and my understanding is that you also are bringing on another doctor to the practice. You know, How are you guys managing your schedule, your treatment philosophies? What's it like working with other doctors in the practice? Oh, that's a good question, too. Um, so five years ago, the senior doctor that I bought the practice from kind of phased out, and I needed to bring someone to, to replace him, and I was teaching at UAB, and I had a really good relationship with a guy named Rick O'Neill, uh, who's my partner now. The nice thing about having a relationship with the university or staying on teaching is that you've kind of always got your pick of the litter, if you will. You can kind of see who's coming out and who you'd like and who you think you would connect with, because a partnership is more like a marriage than you'd ever imagine. I spend more time with with my partner uh, I talk on the phone more with my partner than I do with my wife at times. Uh, it's important that you have that that relationship early on. So I think the connection we've had at UAB together has really helped with that um, from a philosophy standpoint as well. If, we, if we're trained similarly and if I'm involved in teaching and they know my philosophy from, from even as a professor type standpoint, then there's that ease of communication between each other as far as uh, that philosophy goes. Now, three years ago, he became partner. And that's been great. We we tend to kind of balance each other out and, and really complement each other in ways that I never could have imagined. He's good at things that I absolutely hate. And I'm good at things that he has no desire to deal with. And it works well. Uh, there's a lot of confidence that you gain from being able to bounce ideas off of a colleague that's in the exact same situation you are. Not just a friend in a practice, you know, four hours away that you went to residency with, but somebody that's in the exact same situation you are. Uh, and actually tomorrow. Uh, we're bringing in associates. She'll be her first day, and I've taught her for the past three years at UAB as well. So we're looking forward to that, and we have a great relationship, and she already has an understanding of kind of my philosophy of treatment, uh, and philosophy on life, and all those things. So it's so important that those things all match up before you ever go into business together. Absolutely. How do you resolve differences of opinion in a partnership? If uh, you know, you, you've got an idea and your partner has a different idea, what strategies do you guys use to kind of come to some uh, agreement and find common ground? Uh, so we sit down and uh, if we have differences of opinion, which are rare, actually, which you wouldn't expect would be rare, but it is. Uh, we sit down and we both make lists of the pros and the cons. Uh, so just just basically, uh, this is what I think the pros are to this idea and the cons. And then this is what I think they are. And then we sit and kind of lay it all out there and we're as honest as we can be and we are as open as we can be. And we've yet to get to a point where we have ever had to seek somebody else to come in and arbitrate any kind of decision. We, we work w- with what's in the best interest of the office and uh, haven't had any issues to date. Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. 
So it sounds like you've been able to find uh, some great associates and partners to join your practice um, and your connection with the university has helped in that way. How about finding and training staff members? You know, I live in a little bit more of a rural area. That's a challenge we always face up here. What have you done to, you know, recruit and and train team members? The question is right on the top of my brain right now because we're going through some of those issues. Uh, but over the years, you can imagine things have changed drastically. We, uh, when I started, when I bought the practice, we had four assistants and two front staff. And now we have 20 total employees. We have uh, four front staff and 16 assistants uh, between the offices. So it's been very difficult to, to make that work. And it's changed because it went from a simple, small family environment to a much larger, almost it's just a very distant type feeling when you have 20 employees uh, versus six. So the difficulty for us being in a smaller area, uh, you got to be very careful. You don't want to poach uh, assistants or hide or assistants or a front desk from another office. So you gotta be very careful with that. Uh, luckily, we have a dental assisting program at a community college that's local. Uh, so we have the ability to kind of see them as they're coming out. Just go ahead and get them early. I, my preference in hiring assistants is to hire someone who has had some training, uh, dental assisting training, and they know what a tooth is, but have never worked for another orthodontist because it's hard to break old <laughs> habits and it's hard to listen to constantly. Well, Dr. So-and-so did it this way. And you're like, I don't care how Dr. So-and-so did it. This is how we do it. So I love uh, an early grad from a, a community college dental assisting program that's never had a job before. They're the best employees. They're the ones you can easily mold and make into what you want. But more than anything, it's, got, it's all about character and uh, personality and whether or not you you get along. We always do working interviews uh, and it's a half day at least. And we usually try to have lunch together with this, the uh, working interviewee uh, so I can get a feel for how my staff feels because you need that chemistry to really work out because that's if that doesn't work out, then there's tension in the office and it always feels strange. And one of the biggest compliments we've always had is um, when people walk in, it's like, oh, man, I just feel like there's a good energy. And I'm like, I'm not a new age, but they're like, they're, it just feels like everybody here is happy and it's a great place. And I feel like I can get away from whatever it is that's bothering me or worrying me. Uh, and it's important that we have that chemistry with our staff and that they have good chemistry together and to avoid drama. Yeah, that's that's something that's priceless if you can have that in your office. And I'm we're working on that as well. We've I feel like we've got a great team but I've had a couple of assistants who we've hired and haven't lasted <laughs> very long this year. Uh, so we're still hiring for another assistant position because two, two people that I've hired recently, neither of them worked out. Um, but it's a constant challenge to find that person who uh, is going to be a good fit for the office and to give them the training and support that they need. Um, and then when you multiply that, in your case, by 20, it's a constant source of, I guess, stress, but it's just something that has to always be given attention. It is. And, and my clinical coordinator, she's been with me for nearly nine years and she's uh, the one who's responsible for training them. And currently we have three new new clinical hires and I don't know how she's managing. She's kind of stressing out a lot, but she's the one that's responsible for getting them trained on the ways of our office and getting them up and ready to run with patients. And uh, uh, it's so important that you put that the leadership in the right place. The ones who you know have the ability to manage and lead and train, figure that out early, set that into position and and uh, let it let it work. So delegation is not my strong point, but it's so what is the adage? You know, you're, if you know it well already, it's good. But try to dive in and learn all the things that you're really bad at. So I'm trying to, to really work on and focus on the things that I know I'm not so great at. And delegation is probably at the top of the list. 
So by my math, uh, Shane, looks like you've been doing this for a decade, uh, orthodontics. And I guess we'll finish with this question before we get into our, our lightning round here. What do you feel like you've learned in 10 years? What, uh, what advice would you give yourself 10 years ago? And, and what are your goals for the next 10 years? So when I was first out, I was uh, terrified to ever lose a patient, you know, and I think I've learned the, the, the hardest lesson for me to learn is that you, you never regret the patient that you don't treat. Uh, there's all those times, there's often times in the practice where I'll see patients that I'm like, why did I let this person into my life to bring me negativity and all these other things that, that come with it? And uh, but when I was a starving graduate that needed the patient, you're like, no, I'll do whatever it takes to get that patient to stay with me. Right. I've learned that there's not a lot of value in that anymore. So that's that's one of the biggest things I've learned. For two, I've learned patience. That's not a strong suit of mine either. I like things now, and uh, you're not always going to have it that way, especially in orthodontics. It was an odd choice for me. I like to have immediate gratification and immediate success. And with orthodontics, you have to wait, you know, 18 months before you get your final result. Uh, and that's kind of taught me that that life lesson of patience. And you learn Jedi mind tricks. That's <laughs> that's one thing I would say. How to talk to people. How to diffuse a situation whether it be with staff, whether it be with a patient that's uh, unhappy or a patient that's not unhappy all the time, but something that just happened that kind of ruffled their feathers. How do you diffuse that situation? And we, we jokingly in our office refer to that as Jedi mind tricks. And that's something that's important to really, to really learn. Uh, so those three things are probably the biggest. Yeah, I love that. I think that's, those are great pieces of advice here. Well, let's jump in here. We're going to wrap up with our Elevate Express 8. I'm going to ask you eight questions and get some quick answers. That sound okay? Sounds great. Shane, what's your go-to treatment for full-step class 2s? Full-step class 2, depending upon the amount of crowding or flaring of the lower incisors, would be uh, forces or extraction of upper fives. If the patient already has flare, two, two flared lower incisors where I feel like I'm going to uh, do damage by pushing things out of the bone, I will take out two upper Fives. And I like second bicuspids for a lot of reasons, but that's another lecture. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. What's your standard retention protocol? So I use a lower 323 bonded retainer. It's an 030 stainless steel bonded only on the cuspids, uh, permanent retainer, and then an Essex that overlays that on the lower and an upper Essex. Awesome. Who are your role models or your mentors? So um, I was heavily influenced by McLaughlin. MBT was really kind of big when I was in residency. And it was the first time and the first thing that I read that really made a lot of sense. It was like common sense mechanics and things that really stuck with me. So uh, while I'm not a full on MBT prescribed follower, there's a lot of things that I pulled from that that make a lot of sense. So so MBT, um, Andrews, uh, he's a, you know re- reading Andrews book. Uh, the Straight Wire Technique is, a, is an amazing book to read. And then locally. Dr. Vlahos, he's our program chair at UAB, and Dr. Andre Ferreira. Those two guys have been mentors of mine uh, and still remain mentors of mine. What's your favorite orthodontic product or instrument, something you wouldn't want to practice without? I couldn't practice without Clarity Advanced. Uh, those, those are my braces, That's what I'm, and it's flash-free. So Clarity Advanced flash-free is my go-to. Got to have it. What's the best vacation you've ever taken? Took my wife to Hawaii. It was her first flight. It was an AAO at, right after I graduated from residency. Uh, she had never flown before, and we had never been out of the southeast. <laughs> we kind of are homebodies, and uh, you know, country came to town. But we went to Hawaii, and we had the greatest week of our lives. It was one that I would love to repeat. Awesome. What's one great book that you've read recently? Ah, uh, 
the go-giver. Ah. Um, it's just a business book, but it's not the, uh, it's an odd business book in the sense that it's kind of a, a storyline that gives you a lot of uh, business background. I think it's a really good one to read. I've read it. It's a great one. Oh, there you go. Uh, and what's one area of orthodontics that you would like to learn more about in 2019? Huh, an area of orthodontics I'd like to learn. Uh, I'm pushing myself to to really become proficient with plastic. So clear liner therapy and how to maximize my efficiency, how to maximize uh, tooth movement without having to have as many revisions. And especially the in-house versions, I want to 3D print in-house for for relapse cases and for smaller cases that shouldn't require a large lab to produce these. So in-house 3D printing and uh, clear liner in general. Sounds like you've got a busy 2019 ahead of you. That's a big project, I know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, well, Shane, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast and uh, hearing a little bit more about your story. Thank you, and I hope it was uh, worth your while, and I sure enjoyed it and appreciate it. I feel honored to be asked to, to be on it. So thanks, Lance. Absolutely. If people want to follow up, if they have any questions for you, is there an email or other way to get a hold of you? Absolutely. LangleyDMD at gmail.com. Uh, that's my last name, DMD at gmail.com. And then, of course, I'm always open to cell phone calls and texts. And my cell phone number is 251-604-5759. Well, uh, I hope, I guess, for your sake that Alabama wins. I don't really have a, a horse in this race, but, uh, <laughs> you know, actually, I'm probably cheer for Clemson, uh, if I'm totally honest. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes tomorrow night. And, uh I'm I'm looking forward to catching up soon in person. You know the funny thing, Dabo Sweeney, uh, Clemson's head coach, actually played football at Alabama. So we so either way, I feel good about it. <laughs> so all right, I guess we'll we'll wrap it with that. Shane, have a great night. We'll talk to you later. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 